You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. Um, Today, we're going to speak about conversion therapy and what it is and also what it isn't and about the different nuances in relation to conversion therapy, because a lot of people seem to presume conversion therapy only has to do with sexual orientation, while there's a whole drive to include conversion therapy with gender identity. And, you know, in relation to that, we're going to be speaking to Bob Withers, the Jungian analyst. And also we want to lift up that uh, James Esses, who's a psychotherapist, he has uh, brought about a petition which is the petition to safeguard evidence-based therapy for children struggling with gender dysphoria. And the idea behind this petition is the kind of concern about the possibility of normal therapeutic practices being banned alongside conversion therapy. So while conversion therapy has a horrible history to do with um, gay people being really, really treated very badly, there is a whole new side that hasn't really been explored at all. And we're going to explore it in this episode. Yes, and I first encountered Bob Withers' work when I read the paper, The Seventh Penis, which is an excellent paper, and we're going to link it in the show notes. So, Bob, thank you so much. We're glad to have you here. Hi, thanks very much. Yeah, and I've um, done another paper since then. Um, uh, hang on, just transgender medicalization, which is open, open access. So that's the new one. Could you maybe lay the scene when you could just tell us about your work? Because it's three psychotherapists working together here tonight. So could you tell us how you first got interested in anything to do with gender and, yeah, well, you know, I, how, how you came to be here? I will do. OK, that's that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So I work at like a kind of a general psychotherapist or psychoanalyst. And um, in the course of my ordinary work, I sometimes come across trans people. The first person that I saw was in about 1990, who was a biological man who'd lived for nine years as a woman and was sent to me by his psychiatrist because he wanted to detransition, to go back to living as a man, because he realized that he'd made a terrible mistake and that he'd hoped that transitioning would resolve a whole series of psychological issues that remained unresolved. And so he'd lost his penis, of course, that uh, he decided to stop taking estrogen and come back to psychotherapy and do the work after the surgery and the hormones that he wished that he had been encouraged to do before the surgery and hormones. So that's kind of where I'm coming at this from. I'm kind of thinking that it's really important for people like him and the growing number of detransitioners to have effective psychotherapeutic work before they do something permanent to their bodies that they could come to regret. And after writing The Seventh Penis, eventually I, I wrote up his, his case uh, and another um, clinical experience of mine in that paper, The Seventh Penis, which was published in 2015. And as a result of that, um, I was contacted by a stream of parents worried about their children transitioning unnecessarily. And ever since then, a kind of small but significant part of my practice has been with young adults who are either thinking of transitioning or wanting to work psychologically before deciding whether they do transition or not. Typically, I've had sort of two or three people a week uh, alongside the rest of my practice, but it's remained a a research interest of mine because I've always been interested in the relationship between the mind and the body. I've been a senior lecturer before, well, actually at the same time as I was a Jungian analyst, I was a senior lecturer in um, history and philosophy of medicine, including special interest in the mind-body relationship at the University of Westminster. So I'm kind of coming at this from a number of different angles, um, clinical, philosophical, historical, and uh, academic. I'm more interested in qualitative research, I think, than quantitative research, but um, I'm happy to read other people's quantitative research and critique it 
and um, in most cases find it wanting because a lot of the research in this area, as people familiar with it will be aware, is very, very poorly evident. So um, hopefully that's enough of an introduction to me. So Bob, I'm, I'm noticing that when you met this first patient who was interested in detransitioning, can you just remind us what year was that? It was about 1990, and I saw him for four years to about 1994. Okay. That's interesting because this, this man obviously transitioned prior to what we are seeing now, which is just a soaring number of people getting easy access to transition services and also detransitioned before that was a really commonly understood phenomenon. So I think that's a really interesting introduction that you had really that probably set you up well to do the work that you're doing now in the current culture. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how the narratives around gender identity and transition and detransition might have been different uh, when you were seeing this patient compared to now? Yeah, I can say something about that from my experience of his experience, which was that he was desperate to talk about what had happened to him. And there was a trans community then, but of course, um, it wasn't a kind of online community and it didn't involve young people. So it wasn't like a, a trend like it's become. Um, but even back in those days, he found that when he tried to talk about his experience, he was treated as somebody who was betraying the trans community and who was lying about the original trans identity. Um, and he was vilified and persecuted. When he came to write a blog about it, he was attacked and vilified um, so powerfully the only way that he could stop being persecuted was to pretend that he'd made up the whole episode and that he was um, not who he really was. So um, there was that, um, what I wanted to call detransphobia. I think there are certain streams in, um, fortunately not all trans people, but within the extremely active trans activist lobby, there are people who I would describe as detransphobic. And if there's any evidence that anybody is detransitioning, they're basically attacking and vilifying them and reacting in a phobic way to them. And he was certainly an early victim of that. But he asked me to write on his behalf because he said, Bob, you know, nobody's taking any notice of me. Would you please write about me because people might take notice of you? And I didn't get around to it until a later experience when another trans person came to see me several years later, which was more around the the time of the current surge of trans people. And at that point, I decided I could write about him. And I did write about him in the seventh Venus, which is still available for publication at the moment, but may possibly be withdrawn as a a result of certain objections to it from the trans community. What I was thinking more than anything about uh, when I speak with you is your connection and your kind of, uh, you're very interested in the mind-body and you talk a lot about it. I think you worked with body in another life. Is that right? In another career? Yes. Yeah, so I saw a lot of people who identified as having physical problems, but actually they were psychosomatic problems. I worked as a complementary therapist, as an acupuncturist, and as a homeopath. And I became quite interested in how these different therapies were working um, because the physical explanation didn't make sense to me. And then I began to realize, actually, that a lot of what was happening was psychological. And I very early on had that experience of the power of the mind. And so um, that's what led me eventually to, well, I wrote some research up called Towards the Psychology of Homeopathy in um, 1979. Um, And then eventually I trained to be a psychotherapist and then a Jungian analyst. But I've retained that interest in the body, and I've had that since my first degree in philosophy, where I kind of specialized in looking at the mind-body problem. Well, the mind-body problem is is one of the ways in which you understand gender dysphoria. And I'm wondering if you would like to elaborate a little bit about how do, how do you conceptualize this interesting, I, I like to call it a, a human experience of, of feeling gender dysphoric. What do you think this is, Bob? Okay, well, at the, at the risk of dredging the, his, the history of philosophy, here goes... I'm going to go back to Descartes, and he said, I mean, he's very much vilified himself because he divided us up from being whole into minds and being bodies. 
but he did it for very good historical reasons, which I won't go into now. But what he was saying basically was that we know the mind through introspection subjectively, um, but we know the body in a different way. We know the body through measurement and observation and through the external senses, and we can make mathematical calculations. So um, epistemologically, that is in terms of how we know our minds and how we know the body, these are two different ways of knowing. And so whether or not you're a full-blown dualist and think that mind and body are very separate substances, or whether you just think these are different ways of knowing a similar underlying reality, we can say that in the trans-identification um, with a gender identity, because it's subjectively known through introspection, in a Cartesian sense, it would fall on the side of the mind. There's nothing biological there that's identifiable in a trans person. Nobody yet has come up with a reliable way of physically identifying who's trans and who isn't. And my guess is that for a very significant proportion of them, if not all of them, there won't be such a physical marker discovered. Um, meanwhile, what we do know about the body of everybody, um, if they're not actually um, in some way intersex, uh, which about maybe up to one in a hundred people have some form of biological intersex condition, if we, if we rule them out, for now at least, the rest of us uh, are divided up dimorphically into male and female bodily um, biological sexes. So I would conceptualize gender dysphoria as a mismatch between somebody's biological sex body and their subjectively experienced gender identity. And if there is a mismatch and the person is suffering because of that mismatch, that is their dysphoric, then I think we have a duty to try and help them fix their suffering. And then uh, the question arises, well, what's the best way to do that? Should we try and change the person's mind? And if we did that, would that constitute conversion therapy? Or should we try to change their body? And if we did that, would that also constitute conversion therapy if it was possible? Although, of course, it isn't possible to biologically change somebody's sex. So that's how I conceptualize it as a mismatch between the mind and the body. And to me, it's a no-brainer. If you can change your mind first without becoming a lifelong medical patient, it's a preferable outcome. But, of course, that arouses the uh, accusation from some parties that that constitutes conversion therapy. I don't really believe it does, but some people would argue that it does, particularly trans activists. And I can see Stella's got a question. Uh, I do. What I want to do is for listeners... I want to give a definition of what is conversion therapy. So uh, a kind of a, an accepted version would be conversion therapy is the pseudoscientific practice of trying to change an individual's sexual orientation from homosexual or bisexual to heterosexual using either psychological, physical or spiritual interventions. And that was basically what most people saw as conversion therapy. And that's what most people think about conversion therapy. It's trying to make a gay person heterosexual. And that's how we've always kind of viewed her conversion therapy. And it's got a very, very bad, horrible history where, where people who were gay kind of were subjected to some really dreadful practices. Um, Alan Turing is the kind of famous one. Um, he was, a, you know, would you want to tell us a little bit about Alan Turing? We were just talking about him beforehand. But before we go on to the expanded version of what conversion therapy is now becoming known as. Yeah, I mean, he, he, as he was famously um, you know, the man who more or less uh, single-handedly helped crack the Enigma Code and save us from the Nazis in the Second World War. But because he caught, got caught up in a gay scandal, he was given the option to go to prison or take an artificial form of estrogen to effectively chemically castrate him. Um, and so that was a kind of early form of attempted gay conversion therapy. And he felt that the balance of his mind was so badly disturbed that he ended up killing himself as a result of the treatment. There were other people later on who used electric shocks to attempt to cure people of their gayness, which obviously is an abhorrent um, practice. You know, I, I believe... Um, Psychologist Hans Ising would show gay men pornographic pictures and then give them electric shocks of increasing intensity to try and turn them off, um, uh, you know, their sexual choice. And I believe all he did was um, ended up producing a lot of impotent gay men. 
So it's a, it's and, and of course then there are these religious practices where people try to cure people of their homosexuality for religious reasons. So that that's the history of um, gay conversion therapy, and no right-minded ethical therapist would um, practice it or would or would support it. it it's you know it, it's not really an issue. It's not something that anybody. Does. Do you think do you, the way people talk about it in Ireland, it's as if it's it's happening. It's it's like this weird moral panic that there's there's all sorts of priests out there doing conversion therapy on 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 children and adults. Do you think it's widespread? Because every time I hear people talk about it in this context, I think is that still happening? Well, I'm I'm certain it's not happening in any reputable therapeutic organisations. However, what I have seen is websites from trans people claiming that therapists have attempted to practice gender conversion therapy on them. That is to try and get them to identify as the opposite gender to um, the one that... But could I just, could I just, because you, you've jumped ahead, could I just point out that, first of all, we were talking about conversion therapy for sexual orientation. And somewhere along the way, in the last 10 or so years, certainly 20 years, they have kind of moved conversion therapy into not being about sexual orientation, but being about two things. And it's about sexual orientation and gender identity. And that's kind of got moved in. And that's why there was so much talk about the Memorandum of Understanding in 2017 in the UK and in different places. And I think that's why suddenly people think, well, what is going on with conversion therapy? Is there all sorts of conversion therapy going on? And I think it's there's two separate concepts. One is conversion therapy for gay people. And one is purported conversion therapy for people who have gender dysphoria. And I think they are two galactically different concepts. Absolutely agree. So now we can move on to the gender one. I totally agree with that, yeah. And um, I think what's happened is that moral panic, which is justified towards gay conversion therapy, which is not practiced anymore by anybody reputable, is being cynically manipulated by the trans lobby in order to motivate people to sign up for the um, conversion therapy ban. So, um, and really what seems to be happening to me is that a lot of trans people who um, report that conversion therapy may have been practiced upon them, um, my, my worry, my worry, obviously I don't know about everybody, but perhaps some of them have had conversion therapy practiced on them, not by anybody I know and not by any reputable therapist, but my worry is that any attempt to um, uh, help a trans person reconcile themselves to their body, that is to overcome their body hatred, um, if that results in them changing their gender identity, um, then that could be construed as conversion therapy. And the worry is that if it goes wrong, for instance, the therapeutic relationship breaks down between the therapist and the patient, uh, and the patient decides to go off and have surgery and hormones and then complain about the therapist because the therapist was trying to get them to have a, a more comfortable relationship with their body, those, some of those people may well be saying, my therapist attempted to practice conversion therapy on me. Isn't that abhorrent? And then they're making use of the outcry, the justifiable outcry against gay conversion therapy to try and shut exploratory therapists like uh, myself and other reputable therapists from doing their work. What we need to do is to try and help people to explore the relationship between their mind and their body in this case and to see if there are ways of living with discrepancies to try and help them understand why they might hate their bodies. It may be their body is the site of unwanted sexual feeling and their finding it hard to integrate that. Maybe their body is storing trauma that they've dissociated from and they feel uncomfortable in their body and they're backing away from working with the trauma. Well, as a responsible therapist, before allowing somebody to, um, uh, or before encouraging somebody to go and make a physical change to their body, which will not work, incidentally, if it's um, to try and eradicate alien sexual feelings or trauma, it's surely our duty to try and do proper exploratory therapy with those people to see if there's an alternative to becoming lifelong medical patients. And in the case of young people, sterile lifelong medical patients. Um, of course, the drug companies and the surgeons and the medical industry isn't thanking us for talking about um, 
the, the need for exploratory therapy. But it seems to me that there is a radical stream of the trans activist lobby combining with the pharmaceutical lobby to try and utilize the moral panic about gay conversion therapy, which no longer really exists, and to try and attach all that onto an opposition to exploratory psychotherapy, which is a responsible and ethical form of therapy, which I believe we all owe trans patients if they're willing and want to make use of that. And it occurs to me that the very thing that was conversion therapy for Alan Turing, which was estrogen, is the very thing that they are saying that they want, that they that they want this as a, you know, it's 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 an incredible mind melt that they're saying estrogen is, is a great thing and it's it's part of it. And while the the root of, of the most famous conversion therapy incident in the world really involved estrogen. It's it's a it's an extraordinary irony, it seems to me. But I, I do think people don't know what they're talking about when they say conversion therapy. They think they're talking about one thing and they don't know that there's there's been a concept created. And, and the, the, the other thing that's a, a little bit, you know, of a mind melt is that, um, of course, for a significant number of the people who um, identify as trans, they may be people who are struggling with um, physical feelings of same-sex attraction. So for those people, particularly if they perhaps come from a religious background or if they come from a culture where there's internalized homophobia, and let's face it, homophobia is right, really. You've only got to go into a playground here, people insulting one another by calling them gay. So, you know, this, is, this isn't trivial. These, these things get internalized. And it may well be that significant numbers of these um, young proto-gay people feel more culturally and bodily accepting of themselves if they identify as trans. Mm-hmm. So that is itself a form of gay conversion therapy, it seems to me. For those people, it's a form of gay conversion therapy. So in the name of advocating gender-affirming surgery and hormones, you may actually be practicing gay conversion therapy. Um, I don't know if people who want to ban gay, all conversion therapy have even thought about that. When you were talking about, you know, the therapist's responsibility to help a person explore their hatred of the body, what really struck me, Bob, is that the concept that exists today of gender identity has really usurped that entire mind-body relationship. And so while I've certainly seen some young trans-identified patients who are genuinely struggling with the body and actually want to heal the rift with the body. I've met many others who have no interest whatsoever in healing their relationship with their body and instead are attempting to solidify and concretize this kind of esoteric personal sense of gender identity. And that is, that's why when we started this series, our first episode was about the concept of transgender identity versus gender dysphoria, because those are almost incompatible conceptions of what gender dysphoria or transgender is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree, Sasha. I, I don't know if I've even got anything much to add to that, except that there's a kind of um, a, a philosophical essentialism behind the idea that gender identity somehow trumps bodily um, sex. In other words, um, uh, there's an assumption that the true essence of a person is in their self-knowledge of their minds or in their gender identity, and that to try and change that is to violate the true self of the person, whereas the body, you're trying to change the body surgically or, or chemically with hormones, that's sort of seen to be peripheral, as if that's not really um, equally important to the person as the mind. So there's a, a kind of... A, philosophical idealism happening there where the mind is seen as essentially more real than the body and that, that's really a sort of philosophical position that, that underlies um, this notion that gender identity conversion therapy is somehow a violation of, of the person whereas trying to uh, you know cut off their penises or breasts or give them estrogen or block their puberty is, is, is not seen as a an equal um, violation. It's fascinating. So kind of gender identity conversion therapy is 
technically it could be described as as a therapist exploring and challenging a client while uh, transitioning is the individual choosing to change their body and changing the mind is considered a, a, a kind of a sacred space that you should never do when I, I would say we change our mind all the time we expand we we reduce we our minds are constantly changing and I would hope they are. I, w- I would say, isn't that great? And changing the body, I, I, I would say that's body modification. And we seem to have completely got rid of the whole concept of accept yourself. It feels like a 20th century concept. Whatever happened to, you know, accept yourself, you know, <laughs> you, you've, you've only got yourself, you know, make friends with yourself. All that is considered old hat. And I suppose we come of, we've all come of age, I suppose, with, you change your, you dye your hair, you know, you get, you know, breast implants or whatever, you know, that we we come from a world where body modification is just part of it. And it's become almost um, sacred that we're, we're, we're entitled to it and stay away from our minds. And I, I don't know why this has happened. It's a kind of tyranny of the mind over the body, isn't it? Really, I think saying to the body, you will obey me, you will fit in with my sense of who I am, I won't bow to you. There's a kind of omnipotence there, really. But you challenge omnipotence as a therapist at your peril because people don't like their omnipotence challenge. Um, That's part of what we're up against, I think, in trying to work psychologically with some trans individuals. Well, before we got on this call, Stella, you were saying this is ultimately, it's anti-therapeutic. There's something about this entire conversation in which the patient, if they value this inner sense of self above all else, including to the, the exclusion of their own physical body, what is the point of even going to therapy? Therapy is meant to offer you a different perspective and help you yeah. bridge the gap between things that you're not able to see perhaps because of your defenses or because of experiences in your past that are blocking your way. So it, it almost is exactly the opposite of anything we might do in therapy. If we are um, putting gender identity in here with a conversion therapy ban. And I wonder, can we maybe extrapolate some maybe practical examples of how this would look in a therapeutic setting if a clinician was bound to this conversion therapy ban idea, including gender identity. Bob, can you give maybe some examples of how, how might this show up in the therapy room? Well, I think, I think the first thing that would happen would be that therapists as a profession would be terrified because um, if you've got a piece of legislation which isn't clear, and it could be used against you to have you struck off or disciplined or even sent to prison, then you're going to want to avoid working with those patients. Um, and my personal experience is that there are people out there who are quite active in the trans lobby who will use any piece of legislation or any piece of ethical code to try and enforce an agenda of their own and in order to try and close down anything which they may personally be threatened by which might be, for instance, as simple as um, uh, a difficulty giving up their own, own omnipotence or difficulty accepting that possibly they've made a mistake themselves. You know, there, are these, there are people out there who cling on to certainty and then attack other people um, for expressing the doubts that they can't manage in themselves. My fear is that those people will get hold of the legislation and um, use it to tyrannize and, and, uh, and attack. So I think what, what would practically happen is that apart from a few brave or foolhardy souls or people like myself relatively towards the end of their careers, um, nobody would touch trans people with a barge pole therapeutically because they'd be terrified that they, they could have um, litigation brought against them. And so what would then happen would be more and more people would have the gender-affirming surgery and hormones. Um, and um, the, the mind and the mental problems, the emotional side of things, would be thoroughly avoided. And the danger is then we'd have a whole um, huge influx of more and more detransitioners. In fact, I think that's what we're seeing already. There's a huge, um, you know, a flood of detransitioners, particularly 
in the States, I think, but even in Britain and in Europe, where there's more caution. Um, there are huge numbers, larger and larger numbers of people coming out and speaking out, despite the fact that doing so brings them into huge opposition with the trans community. Many of whom, uh, you know, these people are still dependent on the trans community. They still get their sense of identity. Because if somebody say an autistic kid who's found it really, really hard to, to uh, um, make friends and to be part of the community, suddenly to be taken on and accepted because you've got a trans identity by a trans community, that's a very, very powerful thing. So if somebody in that position has to give up the only supportive social group that's accepted them um, because they find that it hasn't really worked, um, that, that, that's a terrible price to pay. And I think we will be pushing more and more autistic spectrum, proto-gay people who've been traumatized and abused into that kind of pathway if we um, pass this legislation, because I think what will happen is ordinary therapists will be terrified of complaints being brought against them. So that's um, rather long-winded way of expressing fear. Well, that, that brings me to Kira Bell, of course, because she... she brought the court case and she said that she should she went as a 16 year old she was very troubled she was very unhappy and she identified as trans and as a trans man she was born a woman and she had issues with her gender throughout her childhood and when she arrived at the Tavistock according to Kira she had three one hour long appointments and she was put on puberty blockers and then within a year she was put on cross sex hormones and within a few years she had a mastectomy and now she's in her early 20s and she regrets it and she brought the court case that that has been so kind of powerful and 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 moving in in the UK and she brought the court case the jud- judicial review that was on in December 2020, the results came and they analysed 3,000 pages of uh, information around gender and around these issues. And they came to the conclusion that it wasn't appropriate to give puberty blockers to kids like her. And as she said, I should have been challenged. I thought it was going to be the answer to all my dreams. They should have challenged me. I was vulnerable. I was didn't know what I was thinking because I was 16 and distressed. And so... They're the very people who I want to protect and look out for. And they, she feels very strongly that she shouldn't have got gender affirmative therapy, which is the kind of the, the gold standard that's been put a very new theory, very new theory, a very new approach, never existed 20 years ago. And it's been put forward as this great, great new model. And already there's been court cases, already there's been masses of social media posts saying I had gender affirmative therapy it didn't work because it wasn't therapy it just told me I was great just said yeah 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 get on the medical road as fast as possible yeah, that's exactly what happened to my first day transition I was given three assessment sessions at the Karen Cross Hospital and it wasn't challenged at all um, so yeah I mean it, it is it's a scandal, and I think one of the effects of the memorandum, one of the unintended effects, would be because ordinary therapists who could work quite well with kids who have body hatred or was slightly on the autistic spectrum or have been traumatized, because they would withdraw from the treatment for fear of being prosecuted or complained about, it would mean that the, um, the specialist gender clinics would pick up all of the children suffering from gender dysphoria. And then, as has happened at the public school, there would be huge long waiting lists. And then there would be pressure on people to do a quick turnover and make a quick judgment. Is this person suitable for biological treatment, you know, surgery and hormones or not? And the chances of anybody having any proper exploratory, explorative therapy would be, um, you know, further diminished. So um, it, it really would be anti-therapeutic, it seems to me, if the ban on conversion therapy was extended into um, gender identity conversion therapy. I think that there's this kind of domino effect that legislators are probably completely unaware about because there's a great deal of time that passes between the enactment of a legislation and the unintended consequences of that legislation. And somebody like Kira Bell is a great example of how 
on the surface, we say affirm a child for who they think their identity is. That sounds really great if you don't take a deeper investigation of it. But then look what happens several years later, you realize that that wasn't really a sound decision. And I think the same kind of thing is happening with these conversion therapy bans. It sounds like a great idea to say therapists should not attempt to change someone's identity. But the unintended consequence is that therapists feel their hands are tied. And then, like you said, Bob, the only people willing to see these patients are the affirmative clinicians who rush them down a medical pathway. And so it's really important, I think, to have this conversation so that people are more aware of what the intended consequences are of lumping gender identity in with sexual orientation for these conversion therapy bans. And for anybody who's wondering, like when we speak about the Memorandum of Understanding, the the issue many of us have with the Memorandum of Understanding, which is the kind of the 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 white paper really for for counselling around gender and sexual orientation, is they've conflated gender identity with sexual orientation as if they're the same thing, and they're so different. And if if you conflate two concepts that are the same. And just kind of as if they're the same and you just roll with a document that presumes they're similar. You've already your whole concept is flawed. And that, that is arguably the, the flaw in the memorandum of understanding that they've, they've conflated two concepts. Gender identity is something that has never really been uh, found. It's based on a theory that we have a gender within us that has nothing to do with our, our sexed body and has everything to do with some sort of soul that's within us. And. It, we Some people say they have a gender identity. Some people say they don't. Some people say they have gender roles imposed upon them. And that's what's called a gender identity. It's a highly contested concept. Well, sexual orientation is what develops within us and who we fancy and who we want to go to bed with and what turns us on. It's just so different. You don't need medication for, for your sexual orientation. There's no equivalence of detransitioning for sexual orientation. And it, it seems incredibly wrongheaded that it was it was conflated in the first place. And I think what we need is a kind of a, a, a memorandum of understanding for sexual orientation and a memorandum of understanding for gender identity. So it's quite clear there's two concepts and two different scenarios going on. Otherwise, it's just a memorandum of misunderstanding, isn't it, really? I think one of the problems, though, to go back to the idea of conversion therapy for sexual orientation, is that um, there are individuals who claim to be ex-gay, right? And they will credit what's considered reparative, I'm using air quotes, reparative therapy, for helping them, quote, overcome their same-sex attraction. So on the surface, it looks as though there is some sort of parallel. And, and somebody who is using this argument might say, well, detransitioners are the same thing as ex-gay individuals who think that... Is there? Of course, yes. I mean, it's not a huge population, but here in the U.S., I know that there are some religious counselors who claim to do this type of reparative therapy and help someone, you know, overcome, quote unquote, their sexual attractions. So I think there's a parallel. And I think that's why trans activists have been able to kind of twist that story in order to um, push for this conversion therapy ban. And on the surface, it looks a bit similar, though I think it's profoundly different just for the the fact that there is no medical intervention if you are same-sex attracted or if you're gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And I think another complicating factor is that even though gender identity and sexual orientation are different, it's well known that individuals who are gay, lesbian, and bisexual have kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, alternative experiences at times with gender and with femininity and masculinity. And so that has been reframed as gender identity and we've we've kind of muddled all of these concepts that are relevant for people's sexual orientation too so it's even trickier than just saying these are distinct categories yeah following on from from that a bit um i suppose there's also um the issue of the people who whose gender identity changes you know they they desist um and yes it's 
probably true that there are a small number of people who have undergone some form of gay conversion therapy, which they wanted to do and which they claim is a success. But it's an incredibly small number of people. Um, whereas somebody's gender identities really doesn't seem to be anything like so fixed as either sexuality or the body. Um, the body never really fundamentally changes. Sexuality might change during a lifetime. Therapy might have an effect on that. Um, but, but people change their minds all the time. Um, and, of course, you know, we're all very familiar with the, the research, um, including the, the recent paper which just came out with Zucker as one of the authors, which, again, shows that um, around about 80% of people who identify as trans prior to puberty um, change their gender identity spontaneously um, before they reach adulthood for adulthood. So um, the whole idea that gender identity is fixed or, or essential in the same way as the body is, is um, a, to my mind, it's a flawed one. And has, yeah, and has been kind of continuously uh, kind of challenged by, by people who are trans themselves. I know Juno Dawson, who's, who's a trans woman, and she wrote The Gender Games. And I noticed at the start of her book, and I suppose it was written in and around 2015, and so it was a slightly different time, but she said, you know, if, if, you, if you can avoid transitioning, don't transition, because it's so hard. It's, it's just so medically hard. It's such a hard road to take. But somewhere in, within those few years since she's written the book, it's changed to, oh, yeah, you can transition anytime you want without giving it any thought, as if it's not a hard road. And it's a hard road. I, I, no matter what, it's a hard road because of the medical burden, for no other reason. But the medical burden really means you're going to be in hospitals a lot. You're going to have a lot of operations. You're going to have a lot of medication. There's going to be issues with your medication. There's going to be an awful lot of kind of tedious hospital appointments that if you could avoid, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great, I would have thought. Well, and a lot of people go into it not really realizing that. I mean, there's the um, research that um, As Hakim talked about where he worked for 11 years at the Tavistock Clinic running a group of people with gender dysphoria. And over the 11 years, he had about uh, 100 people who were looking forward to their transition and surgery and hormones, and they wanted um, some therapy to try and work with psychological issues associated with it. And he had another group of people who'd already had their surgery and hormones, and um, they still had gender dysphoria. And when he put the two groups together, he found that of the 100 looking forward to their surgery and hormones, only two of them actually persisted with their wish to have the surgery and hormones once they realized from the detransition of what the experience of the medical treatment really was, the kind of complication that you're talking about there, Stella. You know, um, once they realized from the transitioners? Once they realized that the detransitioners still had gender dysphoria despite transitioning, and once they realized what actually was involved in transitioning, because the detransitioners who'd been through the transition were able to tell them, well, you know, it's not a picnic. You have to dilate your pseudo-vagina several times a day. You have to keep disinfecting yourself because otherwise you'll get infections. Lots of them have very various medical complications, you know, um, various wounds attempt to close up and you have urinary bladder tract infections. Sometimes the, the neo-vagina breaks down and you have to have an artificial vagina made from a piece of your rectum. And once they were exposed to the reality of what it was to medically transition, 98 out of the 100 people who were looking forward to that transition decided not to do it. And that's just knowledge, but nobody really puts that knowledge out there to the people who are going forward for the surgery and hormones. It's more like, um, you know, a cheerleading um, group of people saying, yeah, join our wonderful community, become your true self, and all you need to do is... Um, you know, take the surgery and hormones, but the, but the effects are, well, they're serious. I have a, a philosophical question. I mean, as Hakim's experience of putting together people post-transition and individuals who are still waiting to transition, to put them together, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting experiment because the reality, as you described, of what transition entails became more obvious to the individuals who haven't yet transitioned. Why do you think we are at a place right now 
we're discussing the reality of something, the physical embodied reality of something, has become taboo. I mean, as politics interjects itself in this trans issue, I just wonder, as a, as a Jungian analyst, do you have any theories on why we are really struggling as a counseling profession, a therapy profession, to deal with the material reality of these things? Yeah, and, um, um, yeah. as a Jungian analyst, also uh, someone who owes a huge debt to Winnicott, um, what Winnicott noticed is that if there is a trauma or a deficiency going on in the early bodily psychosomatic relationship with the carer, usually the mother, then one thing that can happen is the developing child um, has to precociously develop its mind. So instead of being able to rely on the mind of the mother to interpret what the baby needs, the baby grows up trying to interpret in a self-sufficient way what it needs because it can't really rely on the mother. But such a mind that developed by the baby is a disembodied kind of mind. It's what Winnicott would call a full self or a head ego. But it's a, it's, a, it's a mind which is dissociated from its intimate connection with the body because it can't stay in a body that's suffering when the carer can't actually react to the bodily suffering in an appropriate way. So I think what's happening is that, um, and things like the internet where we spend a lot of time head to head talking to each other in a disembodied way, we don't, you know, we, we grew up to be hunter gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years where we were nomadic and we were very physical. We walked many miles a day. We, we gathered and hunted for our um, food and so on. Um, but we've become very, very sedentary since we've had agriculture for the last 5,000 years or so. And we, we, we live in cities. And I think we've become identified with a disembodied mind. And I think it's a kind of huge cultural phenomenon. So, um, I've forgotten the question, but that's the answer. <laughs> what was the question again, Sasha? Oh, no, I think you answered it spot on. I asked, why are we having such a hard time dealing with reality? And this goes back to what you said earlier um, about, you know, this kind of Descartian split or in which the mind is somehow more real than the physical body. So if if your hypothesis that we are completely identified with the disembodied mind that would explain why we are here and why this inner subjective self feels more real and more important to the counseling profession than the physical reality of living in, in the body in three dimension. And, and the, the paper which um, gives me the most inspiration on this is Winnicott's paper called Mind and Its Relation to the Psychosoma, which he wrote as early as 1949, where he describes the seduction of the psyche out of its intimate connection with the body into the mind, into the disembodied mind. So it's as if the soul leaves the embodied person and dissociates into some spiritual realm, um, fed by the internet, no doubt, in this kind of character and age. And that's what you had said before, that you were interested in the mind-body. So I can, it's kind of full circle. I can see how... Um, did you ever read that book by Suzanne O'Sullivan, It's All in Your Head? It's just a few years ago. And she's a neurologist and she works in London. She's Irish, but she works in London. And she 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 found that she worked with people who had um, epileptic fits and epilepsy. She's a neurologist. And she found that one in four of her patients, it was it was psychosomatic. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Like that's like it was just such an extraordinary statistic. And she just writes about like so many different cases of psychosomatic illnesses that she sees as a neurologist. Yeah. And so you can imagine as when I was a homeopath and an acupuncturist, nearly all the people who came to see me were people who couldn't be treated effectively by conventional medicine. And quite a lot of them got better from complementary therapy. But in my opinion, um, especially with homeopathy, where there's no evidence that there's any physical effect from the medicine whatsoever, what makes the person better is the psychology. And that must mean that they're all suffering from psychosomatic illnesses to begin with. So I think it's huge because the other thing that Winnicott says is that when we disembody, when our mind separates from our body through a kind of association which may be in response to, to trauma or deprivation, 
there's a kind of call from the body to try and bring the mind back into its original connection. But that is associated with the pain of the trauma which caused the original dissociation. And so a psychosomatic symptom may be both painful and also a call for the mind to reconnect with the body that it's dissociated from. So psychosomatic illness is very much part of this kind of um, disembodied identification with the disembodied mind. Um, and in order to get back in with the, into touch with the body, what he says in the second paper, uh, published rather later, psychosomatic illness in its positive and negative aspect, he says that it's both a, a call to get back in touch, the symptom is a call to get back in touch, for the mind to get back in touch with the body, but also in doing so, the therapist has to support the patient through a terrifying revisiting of the trauma that could not be managed at the time because the baby was too immature to cope with it. So it needs to be understood by the analyst and re-experienced in the analytic relationship or the psyche to get back into its original collection to the soma. So I think Winnicott's got such a lot to say about all of it. And that mm-hmm. is the true self, not the disembodied mind. That's the soul which is dis- dissociated from the body. Winnicott's notion of the true self is when the disembodied psyche, the, the mind, gets back into an intimate connection with the soma. So he talks about psychosomatic integrity or what he calls indwelling, which is when the soul dwells in the body. That's when you have a sense of true self. False self is when you have the dissociation. So it's such an abuse of the term true self, which is a Winnicottian technical term, to talk about a person becoming their true selves by slicing out their body in order to fit in with the mind. That's the opposite of reintegration of a dissociated mind with the body. That's a tyranny of a dissociated mind over the body. Well said. When we were talking about, you know, um, kind of holistic practitioners and the lack of evidence, but the perhaps placebo effect, I was reminded of a a really interesting uh, video that I saw on a YouTube channel that does science videos for children and teens called Vsauce. And they were interviewing these psychologists or, or researchers in Canada who created an entire fake MRI machine that was supposed to teach the brain how to heal itself. And so they got some participants who were children. So one was a girl with some kind of trichotillomania or some type of picking disorder. One boy was uh, pretty severely ADHD, really had a lot of behavior trouble at school, and another kid with some some other kind of condition. And they talked about, um, I think, what they referred to as um, neuropsychological faith or something, just that we have this belief in the power of medicine or the power of neurology to cure and heal. And of course, they put these kids in this fake MRI machine with, you know, they had sounds coming out of it, but the thing wasn't even plugged into the wall. And lo and behold, you know, the kids absolutely were convinced that they could feel their brains healing and they followed up with them for weeks after the treatment in air quotes, and they were all doing much, much better. And so it's kind of this incredible um, faith that we put in the medical process too. And Bob, when you were talking about what an abuse of Winnicottian terminology it is to cut the body up to be your real self, it also made me think of how willing we are to turn our well-being over to uh, medical professionals who claim to have this kind of magic solution that if you only cut this body part off or if you only take this hormone, your problems will go away. And it's, it's a bit, it's a bit terrifying when you think about what can happen when that goes wrong. Of course, medical advances have saved so many of us from illnesses that otherwise we wouldn't know how to treat. But when it comes to psychosomatic experiences, it is a tricky place to be. It, it reminds me of that story. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen Patrick. He's a detransitioner and he kind of he let out a series of YouTube videos that were just electric. He's from uh, Germany, but I think I think he's from another country. But anyway, he's very good English. And he put them out. They were really, really powerful. He got a lot of attention and then he took them down because, he, he, you know, it was in, uh, too much attention. But they were really powerful. But he said, I met him, actually. I was in Berlin and I met him. Very powerful man. Amazing man, really. But he, he went to his uh, psychologist thinking that the psychologist, just like you said, Sasha, thinking that the psychologist would see whether he was trans or not. And within the first hour, within 45 minutes, the psychologist said to him, yeah, I can see that you're trans. Um, I will 
write to the letter that you need to go ahead and transition and, uh, you know, have hormone procedures. And uh, Patrick was like, wow, I must be, I must be, you know, unequivocally trans because uh, he saw it so quickly. And a few months later, he was at a conference uh, where his psychologist was speaking. And the psychologist said in public at the conference, oh, I affirm absolutely everybody who comes into my my uh, clinic. And Patrick was like, oh, I thought I had this special transgender essence that he saw. And he was so angry and he was so justifiably angry. He went for therapy and he thought there was this sort of concept out there that could be seen or by, by, by experts. And the experts, like autism almost, you are branded transgender and so you should therefore transition. And as if like somebody else is, we will give you this diagnosis of autism. We will give you this diagnosis of depression as if as if it's not just a kind of uh, an analysis that is flawed. And that sometimes is right and sometimes isn't. And we don't have any special insider knowledge on this. It feels like looking behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, you know, you all of a sudden see I thought this entire system was well-researched and there was a method to this madness, but you realize in that moment, Patrick probably saw, oh my God, I was just one of hundreds of patients that got the exact same assessment, the exact same result. Yeah. Mm, Sobering. Frightening. I do want to remind everybody um, to, um, if you are, especially um, in the UK, that there is a, there's a great petition being run by James S's. And it's it's it'll be in our links and it is about the memorandum of understanding and the kind of concept that James and other therapists like myself and Bob have who are in the UK and Ireland is that, yeah, memorandum of understanding, great to have it. And certainly I, I, I like to kind of make sure that there's no conversion happening, conversion therapy happening for gay people, but that it needs to be a comprehensive document that understands the the depths and the nuances that we have like lifted and elevated in this hour's discussion, that it's not a simple issue of, of kind of, 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 of simplistic. It's not a simplistic issue. It's a complicated, complex issue that just de- de- like deserves a complicated and comprehensive document in a way. Yeah. Thanks very much for um, asking me to discuss it. It's been, um, been great. Thank you, Bob. If our audience would like to read anything you've written or learn more about your work, is there anywhere they can go to find out more? Yeah, if they would like to go online, the, the paper I mentioned earlier, which is called Transgender Medicalization and the Attempt to Evade Psychological Distress, that's available open access. Just got to Google it. At the moment, you can still get hold of my paper, The Seventh Venus, but as I said, it may be banned in the near future. So, um, probably have to get it fairly quickly. And uh, apart from that, I've contributed to two volumes of the um, Heather Broadschool Evans and Michelle Moore books about transgender children, um, the latest one of which is Inventing Transgender Children. Um, the other one was Born in Your Own Body, the previous one. So um, I'm, I'm out there in all of those places. And... Um, there are some slightly more complex ideas in the paper about medicalization, which I didn't go into today because they're not particularly related to conversion therapy, Bill. But again, I'm using Winnicott's ideas in there. He talked about um, lobotomy and also um, electric shock treatment as being unscientific treatments in his day and age, which he felt acted in various psychological ways, like the placebo effect you were talking about, Sasha. And mm-hmm. I've in, the, in my latest paper, I've likened um, Winnicott's work on, on that to um, the situation today with uh, the research about transgender medical transition. And, and James's petition is the petition to safeguard evidence-based therapy for children struggling with gender dysphoria. We'll put everything in the, in the links as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. 
Rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.